Hey everyone, we got some exciting news. GTM has a brand new iOS app available in the Apple Store. This is a major refresh of our previous app, and you can download it for all the best news and insights. Plus, you can listen to this podcast directly from the app. Just search Green Tech Media in the Apple Store. And for you Android listeners, we certainly haven't forgotten about you. We'll have our first Android app debuting soon. The Energy Gang is brought to you by PG&E, driving toward a clean transportation future. In most of the U.S., transportation is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions, and that's true in California. It's why PG&E is working hard to make it easier for customers to go electric. If you want to electrify your fleets, PG&E can help businesses, cities, individuals invest in the right option. To find out how to take your transportation electric, visit pge.com gtm. Support also comes from Wonder Capital. By now, you know that Wonder can finance your community or commercial solar projects, and you know they can do it at lightning speeds. But did you know they now have lower rates and they can finance all kinds of projects? They have diversified. Head on over to wondercapital.com GTM to experience the Wonder difference. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Hello. This week, the debate over the cost of renewable energy targets bubbles up again. A new working paper from economists at the University of Chicago finds that mandates are the most expensive way to reduce carbon pollution, and it also tries to quantify the impact on electricity prices. It's getting a lot of pushback from other researchers, but it's worth revisiting this debate because here in the U.S., renewables and carbon-free energy targets are being used as placeholders for real climate policy. So we're going to discuss the findings, the criticism, and where it fits into current popular trends in energy policy. Then Rivian continues to bring in money for electric trucks. What do Amazon and Ford see in the company? Finally, a look at 5G networks. They could revolutionize energy services, but they're also fraught with geopolitical and cybersecurity risk. Coming to us from our secure telegraph line to prevent any snooping, to prevent any hacking, are my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's there in Washington, D.C. She's chair of the policy firm 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hi. Should I be speaking with just, just dots and dashes? Yes, we are We are staying with Morse code to prevent any snooping from the Chinese government. Jigger Shaw is in Bethesda, Maryland. He is the president of Generate Capital. Hey, Jigger, how are you? Dot, dot, dash, dash, dot, dot, dash, dash. <laughs> the sad thing is I used to be a ham radio operator. No so way. So actually no Morse code still. Really? So could you do, can I, can I just have you do the entire intro over again in Morse code? No, I think I, I I think my speed at which I could do it is probably more like two words a minute now. So that would take up the whole podcast. <laughs> well, we have so much to say about today's topic. So I think we're going to keep uh, regular verbal communication going and, and no Morse code. Um, so we're going to talk about this study that came out of the University of Chicago. And I want to provide a little background first. Uh, Here in the U.S., we rely mostly on a couple common policy tools to move clean energy technologies forward. On the federal level, it's tax credits. And on the state level, it's renewable energy targets. Because we're unable to put a set of climate-specific policies in place, these tools are what we have to fill in the gap. 
And for over a decade, researchers have been modeling the cost of renewables mandates. And the results often break down in predictable ways. Um, when it comes to like political groups, conservative and progressive groups often come to very different conclusions about costs and benefits. But for those who model this for a living, like, for example, researchers at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, they fall right in between. The costs of renewables mandates are very modest. They make up a small portion of uh, retail electricity rates, according to Lawrence Berkeley. And those uh, costs depend on how a policy is structured and what kind of market and regulatory environment a state operates in. So to put simply, it's complicated. And I provide that background for a reason, because these economists at the University of Chicago dropped a working paper that claims renewables targets have increased prices dramatically on average in states with these policies. It's revived a debate over RPSs that had recently died out. But the topic is worth tackling for a couple reasons because it shows how hard it is to model this stuff. And we're at this moment when states and Green New Deal proponents are pushing hard for 100% renewables as a fill-in for carbon pricing. So I, I want to talk about how this fits into the current environment. First, to the study, and then we'll broaden. Catherine, what did it find? Yeah, so it found that in the 29 states in Washington, D.C. that have RPSs, which actually, if you count all of those states in D.C., that accounts for 64% of the electricity sold in the U.S., so it's a pretty high majority of what, what is sold in the U.S., that it that these RPSs have increased electricity prices by 17%, that they've been inefficient and expensive at reducing carbon, that um, that the cost is, can be attributed to the intermittent nature of the resources, so having to have backup generators, um, that the physical space with transmission interconnection um, is both expensive and takes up land, and that those prematurely displaced other types of generation have been born, um, the, that the customer has borne the cost of those displaced generators. So that's basically the line that they're taking on this. There are two pieces to this conclusion. One is the cost of carbon pollution mitigation, and the other is how much they factor into retail electricity price increases. Both are very complicated questions. The most pushback comes from this claim that electricity prices have increased mostly because of RPS adoption. Jigger, how does this conclusion stack up to what we know today uh, in practice and in modeling? Well, I think we should start by saying that it's a really good thing that economists are studying RPSs and our sector broadly. I think they've largely ignored our sector. And when they have gotten in, this sort of method stuff really is hard for them, right? So remember, we talked about the Freakonomics paper um, that, you know, described energy efficiency for affordable housing, um, which also, I think, you know, was problematic in the way in which it came to conclusions. So on this one, what they've done is said, average electricity rates in the United States have gone from roughly $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour in the 90s to roughly $0.12 cents a kilowatt hour today, and that almost 100% of that increase was due to RPS standards, which I think all of us know is not really true. But because they averaged all the data and didn't actually um, you know, control for time variables as well as learning curves from the different technologies, they just weren't at a level of sophistication needed to um, do the analysis properly. So I don't, I don't fault them for trying. It just didn't work out as well as they, you know, had hoped in terms of the methods that they used. 
And I think in some cases they were asking and answering the wrong questions. So rates is very different from bills. So if you look at some states like Alabama that has very has much less renewable energy penetration than some other states, their rates are very low, their bills are very, very high. So I think looking at rates alone is is an incomplete look at, at the impact of any policy. Why is it problematic that they averaged these rate increases and stuffed all these RPSs together? Um, well, I'll just kind of answer the question initially. There are a lot of different types of RPS policies. They bring in different types of technologies, and they often operate in different types of regional markets, some regulated, some non-regulated regulatory environments as well. So like, why is it problematic to stuff all that together and make one assumption about cost increases? Well, I, you know, I think that the, the big challenge is basically that when you, when you look at uh, stuffing all this stuff together, is that, for instance, some of the RPSs were more focused on utility scale um, deployment. Well, frankly, like in New Jersey, there's less land available than there is in California, right? And so there were a lot more rooftop projects supported versus, you know, uh, land-based projects, right? There's a lot of focus on wind, and some areas of the country have a lot more wind resource than other areas. Some folks decided that they would only buy electricity from their own state, right, and their own borders, you know, within the Commerce Clause uh, issues that are out there. And some allowed for importing uh, wrecks from other markets, right? And so you just have a lot of this variability, which makes it pretty hard for you to just do an average. Um, you know, my, my big thing here is not really their methods, which, I mean, researchers have terrible methodology all the time. The big challenge is that they actually put out a press uh, release, you know, on their study before it was fully peer reviewed, and then actually even held a seminar to celebrate their findings before it was peer reviewed. And that to me, like makes this whole process more suspect. Why is this study conclusion so different than the 2015 Lawrence Berkeley study that was seen by many to be sort of the definitive conclusion on the cost of RPSs. And it found that RPSs account for about 2% of retail price increases. So yeah, there's a little bit of an impact, but generally they're not that major. And there are a lot of other factors that go into retail electricity price increases over time. So why is this one just so dramatically different? I guess that's what's confusing to a lot of people out there. Because they didn't have any intentions of actually coming up with you know, some sort of insight to RPS regulations, right? I mean, this is really a set of economists saying, if we use established economic theory and economic approaches to this new problem to us, what would the results be? And, you know, what, you know, many of the folks in our industry have realized is that the method that they, that they use to, um, evaluate RPSs were just flawed in many ways because of the averaging that they did, because of the time variability that they sort of smushed together as well, right? And so the costs of 
renewable energy in 2003 can't be compared to the costs in 2007 because of the um, you know the learning curve effects, right? And so they just smushed a lot of it together. They separately didn't account for the fact that we had underfunded transmission distribution in this country in the 90s, and we were making up for lost time in the 2000s. So those are not costs that can be you know applied to renewable energy. Those were uh, upgrades that needed to be done anyway, and you had nothing to do with RPS standards, but they attributed them to RPS standards anyway, right? And so so I think they were really just doing a very interesting thought experiment on their part, which is fine. Academics can do whatever they want. But when you actually then hire a, you know, a, a, a journalist and say, hey, you should moderate the panel that we want to do in Chicago and you know make a big fanfare of it and try to get mass media press, then it starts to be like, what were your intentions here? Well, this is what is frustrating about the process. So they came out with this conclusion, and they call it a working paper, and they make this big press splash, and they go out to the press, and they try to pitch it, and then you get a lot of media coverage that you know with, with blaring headlines saying renewable energy causes massive price increases. But then when the, all this criticism rolls in from academics uh, and analysts who have followed this very closely, they say, whoa, 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 why are you all criticizing this? This is a working paper. This is part of the process. Well, if this is part of the process, why come out with this big media splash when you know full well that your conclusions could change over time? So for me, that is actually the frustrating piece of this. It's that they want to come out full force in the press, but then they want to say, whoa, this criticism uh, isn't necessarily warranted. We're going to take all this feedback and feed it into our conclusions. It's a working paper. Yeah, they, that academic process seemed pretty sloppy um, when they put it out. One thing I just want to go back to is that States have been doing RPSs for a long time. Iowa was the Iowa was the first state to have an RPS, and that was in 1983. I worked on I was on McGreevy, who was then the governor of New Jersey, um, in 1999 on the first RPS in New Jersey, and then again in Maryland during their first RPS in 2004. And I know Jigger worked on a ton of them too. And the reasons that we gave for putting out RPSs and trying to promote this public policy. We're not at that time to solve for climate. You know, remember, we had come out of an oil embargo with all of these price shocks. And so there was this whole issue of let's make sure that we have some pricing stability, that we, that we diversify our fuel mix with homegrown energy. There was a big national security piece to this. Renewable energy showed that we were ener- had energy independence. The, you know, we hadn't had the shale boom then, so we didn't have this natural gas resource out there to export. So this was really about, like, let's grow our own energy. And as Jigger said, every state had a different resource. I was working at the National Renewable Energy Lab, and we were promoting resource assessment, which basically said, all right, let's look at all the potential for renewable resources in every single state, knowing that they're all going to be slightly different, and figure out what we would need to promote in each to make sure that our fuel is very diverse. And so if you look at that, and you look at stabilizing fuel costs, and you look at energy independence, the RPSs did exactly what they were supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you're exactly right. And I think that, 
you know, we were more active, I would say, from 2003 to 2005. And in those three years when we passed, you know, in California and Colorado and other places, what we found was that the biggest argument that we used was this fuel diversity argument. I remember right in California, you had the Enron crisis and folks were just really scared about natural gas price volatility. The same thing's true in Colorado. You know, um, you know, Lee Raymond, the, the former CEO of ExxonMobil at the time, had said that natural gas production had peaked in North America and that all new natural gas growth was going to come from LNG imports into the country, right? So people were really freaked out about this. And I just think, you know, it's amazing how many new people we have in this battle and how many people have forgotten about that history. That brings us to the second piece of this paper, which is all about how much it costs to reduce CO2 through these policies. And as you explained, these weren't initially set up as climate policies. They had this whole range of benefits. And it's only recently when people have been using them as climate tools because we can't do anything interesting on climate in this country. So then what about the conclusions that this is the most expensive carbon reduction tool? Thoughts on that? Well, the challenge with doing that is the analysis is done partway through the cycle. So when you think about the nuclear energy cycle, many utility companies bankrupted themselves in the late 70s because of cost overruns on nuclear power. Had you done the analysis in like 83, 84, 85, right, when nuclear power plants were basically at the end of their construction cycle, the cost of nuclear power on a you know, on an incremental impact on the utility bill basis may have been $200 a, a ton for CO2, right? But today, people look at nuclear power and say, you have to average 45 years worth of production divided by the total cost, and therefore the cost of nuclear abatement for CO2 was only $20 a ton, let's say, right? And I think you'll see the same thing with wind and solar. I mean, today we have wind farms that are actually producing at 50% capacity factors and are at half the cost uh, compared to new coal plants or combined cycle natural gas plants. And so you're in a situation now where, in fact, over the 30-plus year life cycle of wind and solar plants, you might actually have a negative cost net-net for these policies. I guess I'm wondering how this feeds into today's environment, where in the U.S. we're often saying or a lot of advocates are often saying, hey, wind and solar can do the do most of the job. If we can't get a carbon price in, let's go 100% renewable. Let's do 100% carbon free, whatever it is. And um, they seem to be saying, no, you need some other suite of policy tools to be able to do that cost effectively. This isn't going to cut it. Thoughts? Yeah, I guess it depends on what you're aiming for. So if you're looking at trying to make things more cost competitive, like PURPA in 1978 allowed renewable energy to compete with regulated monopolies, that was a really big policy to allow for more diversity of energy resources. And RPS would rely on much more private market investment, as opposed to in Germany, remember, they started with a feed-in tariff, which is very different construct. Now people are talking about things like a clean peak standard where you address, you know, what is the problem you want to solve for? It could be climate. It could also be the fact that you have to run these really dirty peaker plants during the high peak demand times on the electric grid. Well, so let's have a clean peak standard and use solar and wind at those times when they're when they're available and you can pair them with storage or demand response or other DSM technologies to make sure that we lower our peaks. So we have to figure out what are we solving for and then create the policies that allow us to solve for those. Yeah, I think the premise of the question is 
you know, generally incorrect, right? I don't know that these researchers at the University of Chicago actually had any real knowledge base to start from. So I think that they were trying to use economic, you know, tools to apply to a new sector. And so, you know, this is their first stab. And I think it was a pretty poor stab, but it sort of is what it is. I think, you know, in general, this is really political, right? As we talked about, getting a carbon tax passed is pretty hard. Getting a renewable portfolio standard passed was turned out to be a lot easier. And now folks are saying, well, why don't we use that momentum to get 100% clean energy policies passed? And lo and behold, Washington State become, became the latest state to pass something. So now we have six states that have passed something, and, and we're on track to making that you know, something that actually has a lot of momentum around the country. So I also think that, you know, say you do want to figure out what if, if you think you have problems with intermittency and land use and displacement of stranded assets on consumers, well, then let's figure out how do you look at those individually and what have what have we been able to do on those? And let's really talk about stranded assets, because there are a whole lot of other plants out there that have been and um there are a whole lot of costs out there that have been passed on to consumers that have absolutely nothing to do with renewables. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about electric trucks. Are they the next big target for electrification? First, now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet. If you're a city, if you're a company, and you're in PG&E service territory, you can take advantage of limited time incentives, get educated, gain access, make the smart choice to take your fleet electric. And PG&E is right there to help when you decide to do that. They've got new commercial EV rates, which makes fueling your fleet simpler and likely cheaper. You can get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists at pge.com gtm. And we've been telling you for a while now that Wonder can finance your commercial solar projects. But what does that actually mean? Well, they can do it all. They can go to New York and finance community solar projects with 100% residential offtake. They can go to Hawaii and get your solar project financed with a storage component. They can go to Massachusetts and finance smart projects. They can go to California and finance projects through CCAs. Let's be honest, there is no such thing as a vanilla commercial-scale solar project. Head on over to wondercapital.com gtm to experience all the flavors and work with folks who will understand your unique project for what it is, financeable. Okay, on to Rivian. We've made some pretty decent progress in the first phase of electrifying cars and buses. Our trucks next. In just the last few months, Rivian, a maker of electric trucks and SUVs, they call them adventure vehicles, which I like, has brought in $1.2 billion from Amazon and Ford. Amazon wants help electrifying delivery trucks, and Ford is looking for some help with electric truck efforts. So why all this activity now? Why this company? Jigger, who's Rivian, and why are they pulling in all this money right now? So Rivian is, I guess you can call them a startup company, but they've raised so much money that it's hard to call them a startup company. Yeah, and they're 10 years old. Yeah, it was founded in 2009 uh, by Robert Scrange. And, you know, they're based in, uh, in Plymouth, Michigan, which is, you know, the heart of auto country. And, you know, what they've really done is said that we really believe that the truck market is underserved, right? I mean, that the United States buys a lot of trucks and, you know, that Tesla's really focused on the sedan market and, you know, there needs to be somebody who has an offering here. The one thing that I've seen that people really haven't talked about is that the reason electric utilities are so far behind implementing EVs in their fleet is because they need a lot of trucks. So a lot of utility 
uh, fleet vehicles are actually trucks. And so I think the utilities are going to be the first customers for Rivian, not uh, the general public. So uh, what, what does Ford want from Rivian? I think the same thing. I think Ford's saying, instead of spending $4 billion in-house, we should spend $500 million through Rivian, and then we should get them to support the electric utility truck market. Because the thing with Ford is they're saying, we don't want to get involved unless we can sell 100,000 units a year. And no one believes that Rivian's going to sell 100,000 units a year for the better part of five to seven years. So Ford's saying, if we could put $500 million here, get them to do all the dirty work and put out a vehicle and, you know, sell a few thousand here and a few thousand there to the utility market. And then seven years from now, when we get to 100,000 vehicles a year, we'll come out with our own truck. Yeah. And remember, they're going to do this together. So it will be branded as a Ford vehicle, but it will have the guts, all of the, you know, the, the packs, the modules, the controls, all that of the Rivian and all that technology in in the same way that the Toyota RAV4 EV has the Tesla battery and powertrain, it's going to be a similar deal where they're able to use that technology. And it, I've always thought that if you can get something like this or the F-150 electric, you're done. <laughs> We're there with EVs. Well, I, I feel the same way, but I just wonder why trucks are now on the menu at this point. I mean, why, why haven't companies like GM and Ford put much more focus behind electric trucks if they've you know they're rolling out these plans with tens of billions of dollars in investments in EVs and they're only now talking about trucks and SUVs in a major way well this is where the impact of Tesla can really be seen right remember when Tesla first came out um, not the Sportster or the Roadster but the Tesla Model S people were still talking about range anxiety and all these things. And when you think about what Tesla did was they built all these supercharging stations and all these things. And they said, we're going to have ludicrous mode. And, you know, and, and they started to get people comfortable with the fact that, that these vehicles could do anything that your diesel or gasoline-powered vehicle could do beforehand. And I don't know that that was understood or appreciated by the automakers. In general, they were looking at... How do you get micro cars, like look at the Chevy Bolt, that's a tiny car. I like it, don't get me wrong. But if you're generally the kind of person who wants to buy an SUV, you're not going to be satisfied with a Bolt as your electric option, right? And so, but that's how people think. These are all engineers who say, well, if we can get a very super energy efficient vehicle and we can get four miles per kilowatt hour out of it, then that's what the consumer wants. And it's only recently that Tesla has been able to convince everybody that no, people are willing to take electric vehicles in any form or fashion. They just want to know that it meets their specs. And, you know, and I think Rivian's, you know, sort of drafting off of Tesla's work on that. Yeah, and if they can get 400 miles range and it'll last 10 to 15 years, that's a serious uh, pickup truck. Well, let's go from electric trucks to 5G. And no, I'm not talking about fifth gear. I'm talking about the communications network. Telecom regulators and experts were in Prague this week for a 5G security conference, and they're all trying to establish a global framework for security as countries prepare for the rollout of 5G communications networks in the coming years. It is coming. It'll be, you know, rolled out by 2020 commercially, many providers say. And uh, guess what? China and Russia were not invited to this security conference. So 5G, as I'm sure a lot of people know by now, is short for fifth generation wireless networks. They could be up to 20 times faster than the current generation. It's going to be foundational to 
autonomous cars, new generations of AI, machine learning, smarter airplanes, connected devices in the home. This is the communications layer that could give us a true Internet of Things. There's just one problem. Governments are terrified that Chinese companies like Huawei, which is leading development of the tech, will help the Chinese government gather intelligence on other countries and put sensitive networks at risk. The U.S. government is trying to restrict Huawei from building out 5G. This has been a really contentious legal and political battle. So it's worth considering the energy industry impacts of this leap in technology and the risks that come with it. Catherine, what is the promise of 5G for energy. Okay, so before we get to what exactly 5G is, I had to go back because I am not an internet specialist. I had to go back and figure out like, what is the world of internet? What does broadband mean? And there are a bunch of different categories for it. So there's something called DSL, which is a digital subscriber line, which is through your telephone cable. There's cable modem, which goes through your TV system. There's fiber optics. So fiber is cables. Most of Folks like rural co-ops are using those um, to try to get internet to their people. There's wireless, which is where 5G comes. There's also satellite and BPL, which is broadband over power lines. And that's using the, you know, the copper lines that are out there now. And those are fewer and far between. But just to kind of get it straight in my head, I wanted to understand what are all these different ways that you can deliver broadband internet service to people. So wireless is really good if you have the land and the ability to put up towers and get signals out to everybody. And if you can do that, and I've worked on Smart Grid for a long time, you'd be able to actually use data and communicate between systems, whether it's in the home or on the grid for information and controls. So there is a lot to be said for if you're able to do this from a wireless system and you can really manipulate very granular bits of data, then you'd be able to do a lot with energy. Well, you know, the going into the background of how the technology works, 5G relies on these high frequency bands, uh, which, you know, they can only travel short distances. And so you have to put these relays inside of buildings, basically on, you know, on almost every building or at least on every block. And that's one of the big security concerns. People are worried that it, it gives, you know, uh, spying technology granular information on what's happening inside of all these buildings. It's basically like this distributed cybersecurity risk. Um, it also consequently means that if you have a lot of trees and foliage that 5G probably won't work that well. So unfortunately, there's going to be this greater divide between uh, the urban environments and, and rural environments with internet speeds. Yeah, definitely hills get in the way when you try to do that yeah, in Virginia. That's right. Yeah, well, yeah, but exactly. the other interesting thing is that when we look at who has internet in this country, um, there is like a huge lack of knowledge because the way that the FCC, which is the controlling body, counts it is by census track. So say you have a city that has really good internet service, but then the entire rural area around it has zero, it's still colored in red as completely covered on our maps. So it is. it looks like Virginia has internet everywhere. And yet when you get outside of the cities, like all the kids are sitting in McDonald's doing their homework or in the library because that's the only place that has internet service. So 
we actually, you know, when you look at trying to get to the next generation of internet, we have to think about how do we serve the people that don't have it now? And there are a lot of people in this country who don't. So, I mean, maybe they can leapfrog. That would be terrific. But we have to kind of take that into consideration and really do some reform of our FCC to make sure that we're counting correctly. Yeah, it's why you podcast from D.C. and not Virginia, Catherine, because there's nothing more annoying than when you're sitting in McDonald's trying to get Internet connecting with us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I think on the other side, I would say that, you know, we're doing a lot of investments into Internet of Things for buildings. And, we're, you know, you're really actually going all the way where you're, you're actually controlling a building remotely. Um, the cybersecurity implications of that are real, but the energy savings are also real. You know, my sense is where we're at right now is that we're not really getting the full benefit of continuous commissioning systems and other things that have been promised around the building efficiency side because of a lack of sensor. Um, you know, one of the one of the uh, counterpoints to that though is that those sensors then collect a ton of data, and that data has to go to data centers. And data centers are already 6% of all electricity consumption globally. And they're expected to get to 20% of electricity consumption globally. So one of the things that I am still trying to figure out is while I think that we can actually get a lot of energy efficiency in particular, but then also renewable energy matching with uh, demand uh, with this kind of technology, I also worry that we're actually creating a huge amount of of additional energy consumption by, you know, all the data centers that have to process all this data. Oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought of the upstream impacts like that. Um, so, so what, so th- thank you for bringing that back around, by the way, to the functionality. What can't, what can't we do today with our current networks that we could do with 5G in buildings and energy use? So there's a lot of things that we thought we could do with 4G. And what we're finding is that there's latency between when um, you collect a piece of data from a sensor, and then that sensor actually talks to the cloud, and then that the cloud sends the data to the proper processor to to create a action, right? And then that action is then communicated back to the building to make something different happen at the building, right? And then that that latency is pretty um, pretty high. And then the other piece of it is that the pipe is small. So at a wind farm, for instance, um, you really need like 150 sensors to be able to prevent a wind technician from having to go to the windmill every time you find something that might be an error sensor like you to double check to see exactly what went wrong, you need to have like 150 sensors. And right now we have like 15 sensors. And so 5G allows you to have 150 sensors, which makes it far more cost effective for complicated um, endeavors like anaerobic digesters that we own or wind turbines or other things. Like if you really want to reduce the truck roll and then significantly reduce the cost of operations and maintenance, then you really need 5G instead of 4G. I don't know how much you want or can speak on Huawei specifically, but this is, of course, a massive Chinese telecommunications company that supplies a lot of power electronics to the renewable energy industry. Um, there's a, there's concern that because Huawei has such a close relationship with the Chinese government and it actually does business under a Chinese law that requires them to send back data to the Chinese government, that if they deploy a lot of infrastructure here in the U.S. and it gives them the, the Chinese government an in to start spying on U.S. citizens and the U.S. government, 
Is, is this something that like should should worry us? Well, I don't have any specific information about Huawei, but it is worrisome. Obviously, you know, we want security. I mean, Vodafone, um, there's a big article on Vodafone. And in 2011, they found that um, Huawei had built in a backdoor to all of their equipment um, that, you know, Vodafone said was unintentional. But I think that was just them being diplomatic. And it took almost two years to get Huawei to fix the back door so that, you know, that Vodafone um, wasn't worried anymore that Huawei was was being able to siphon that information off. And I think when you think about cyber attacks and other things, we are all very worried that um, that our wind turbines and our buildings can be remotely hacked and controlled. I mean, the same level of functionality that I want to be able to control a building to save energy remotely can be used by hackers to do things that are you know, scary to the people who live in those buildings. And so I think we're all very concerned about that. And we need to nip it in the bud because if our customers believe that there's even a 1% chance that that might happen, they're not going to deploy these energy efficiency solutions. Catherine, do you think the rewards outweigh the risks at this point or still too early to say? I think these issues are solvable, but we probably need to invest in them. We probably need to get some pretty strong policies in place to make sure that we're protected Um, But I also think there is another issue about the type of systems and consumers that have access to these technologies. So Jigger is talking about very sophisticated building systems or distributed generation systems that are communicate that have large consumers that are communicating potentially through 5G would be great. But if you really want the demand and supply side to be fungible, which is my big dream, you really need everybody to be involved. And right now, consumers can't even get access to their own utility data, much less any kind of high-speed anything. Um, and so when you, I talked to somebody who worked for a rural co-op, and he said, look, these large data centers that are trying to locate, and all these states are saying, oh, come to our state into these rural areas to try to you know, give them some economic benefits. These companies say, yeah, that's great. So we'll have what we need, but we're never going to be able to lure any talent or have people work anywhere around us unless they also have access to all of this technology. So I think there's there's something to be said for not just making sure we protect ourselves up front uh, from a security standpoint, but also make sure that whatever we develop, that the policies are in place so that everybody can have access. Let's go to our free electrons now, powered by 5G networks, maybe sometime in the future. Catherine, what is yours this week? Uh, so since we're just off of spring break, and I spent a whole bunch of time all through Virginia and North Carolina, and in fact, I just went back to North Carolina for their state energy conference, which is amazing. They have a huge energy ecosystem down there. I just want to follow up on a couple of items from Virginia. You know, Virginia giveth and Virginia taketh away. So the taketh away, I'll give you the bad news first, which is that the governor did not veto the provision that said that Virginia couldn't be in the Reggie system. So... There was a there was a poison pill put into the budget um, by the legislature that said that we could not you know, regulate greenhouse gases, and the governor did not veto that. So that was really disappointing. On the other hand, the Virginia State Corporation Commission approved all of Dominion's efficiency programs for five years with no individual program spending caps, just the total amount of funding. Um, six residential and five non-residential programs, it's going to be um, over $226 million for Dominion and about $6 million for Appalachian Power. This is efficiency and demand response. So I feel really good about that part of the state moving forward. 
because as everybody knows, if we want to reduce CO2 emissions, about 40% of that has to come from efficiency. So I was pretty happy to see that. Well, everyone loved our discussion about Virginia. We got a ton of emails. More than any other state, people were like, hey, finally, you're talking about Virginia. So Yeah, and another piece a of, of... A lot of listeners paying attention. I am so glad. Uh, um, another piece of this is that the utilities have been told they can't do any rate adjustments unless they can prove the savings with real cost benefits methodology to show that they're that they are really putting this money to good use. So I think that's hopeful. Jigger, your free electron. Well, first, I uh, spoke at the Houston, you know, Research Center um, on Wednesday of this week, and we had a lot of our friends that uh, came out uh, to support that, which was really great. But the one piece of feedback I got was they said they hate the word free electron, so for what that's worth. Really? uh, Why? they, They don't believe that electrons should be free. So uh, I will uh, I, I will pass that piece of feedback back to you. Um, Wait, I don't understand. What do you mean? They must not be renewables, people, because renewables electrons are free from the sun and wind. <laughs> they're free. They're free of CO two, but I think it does cost money to put them out there. But I think I'm talking about carriers of electric charge. <laughs> I'm just don't kill the messenger. I'm just telling you what I got back from them. But um, I wanted to talk about the Beyond Meat IPO. Oh, yeah. So Beyond Meat went public yesterday, and uh, and it was a huge success. The stock was up 163%, and it's up again today. And so from that perspective, it's fantastic. I just wanted to read one thing, though. As a value investor, I can't help myself. To justify the current uh, stock price for Beyond Meat, they have to grow their revenue by 50% every year for the next 10 years and have a net operating margin of 6%, which would mean that they would earn $3 billion in revenue in 2028 and finally get to 1% of annual U.S. meat sales. So what does that say and to so you? Like, so first of all, they're really small. They have to grow up 50% a year every year. Um, just to, to to justify their $4 billion valuation. And second of all, they have to grow at 50% a year just to get to 1% of annual meat industry sales. So we're really far away from the carbon reduction potential of um, these meat alternatives. But I'm happy to cheerlead with the best of them. Well, uh, I have no stake in the company, but I will certainly go out and buy a Beyond Meat burger to help them get to that. growth target. As opposed to a steak. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I love them. I mean, you know, Seth Goldman. But they don't make steaks, right? (laughs) Well, they make make great uh, kibasa and some other stuff. So it's actually really good. And I mean, I I followed them for a long time because Seth Goldman here in the D.C. area is a big investor in them and is a chairman of their board. He's the uh, former, well, still founder of Honest Tea. And um, so it's, it's great for the investors. But I think this is one of my problems with the food industry in general is that these guys are all making a ton of money. But it's not clear to me that they're actually on track to decarbonizing the food industry. Well, that's a positive story. But I've got something a little depressing to mention. As I did my normal weekly news reading, I came upon an op-ed in The Guardian from one of the documentary filmmakers that worked on David Attenborough's new documentary on climate change. And she just wrote about how terrified she is after having embedded herself in the filmmaking process, going around the world, looking at how quickly ecosystems are changing. 
And uh, I was just struck by this because every time you hear from a climate scientist on the front, front lines or a documentarian who's actually going and documenting these changes, they all say the exact same thing. They're like, you, you have no idea how fast things are changing. Um, and, you know, that's why I like films like Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral, because they do a really good job of succinctly showing how that change is occurring and then taking the emotional reactions of the filmmakers and the researchers who are monitoring this stuff and putting together a really gripping film that kind of tugs at your heartstrings. So um, I, I don't really have a takeaway from it other than I was struck by this op-ed because echoes everything that other filmmakers have said when they work on these projects. And you just hear this time and time again that the folks who are on the front lines are are, are seeing changes that we can't even really fathom removed from them in cities. Well, look, I you know, I think the bottom line here is, you know, Jay Inslee just put out a huge climate change proposal today. And, you know, I think we've all recognized that you need a World War II footing, which means that at some point, all these real world implications of climate change will allow us to politically pass what's necessary to combat climate change. I mean, you know, FDR was planning to enter World War II for two and a half years before we actually did because he knew he didn't have the political support to enter until after Pearl Harbor happened. And so I just think that sometimes we have to recognize that that's how politics works. It's not just driven by the science. And that does it for the end of the show. Find us anywhere you get your podcasts. I just saw some research that came out this week that showed uh, the two best ways to get people thinking about podcasts are promotion and other podcasts and having people send friends and family recommendations. So that's why I continually say on this podcast, uh, send, send a link around to folks who you think may enjoy this podcast because when you do you help us grow the show you help us spread the word about the solutions to the dire climate consequences that i just outlined Catherine, welcome back from spring break uh, good talking to you again hope you enjoy the rest of your week and weekend thanks you too jigger go grab a beyond meat burger get settled enjoy your weekend with a you know a cold glass of whatever you're going to mix together and a beyond meat burger Thanks. And I hope that all of our listeners will recommend what to call our final segment since Free Electron is now up for debate. <laughs> it is not up for debate. Haters going to hate. You can't just yeah. let one, one person say, derail the entire segment. <laughs> anyway, we'll catch you next time. I'm Stephen Lacey. We are The Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. We'll catch you next time, folks. Bye.